Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Good evening. Second Samuel chapter 10, and we'll be in chapter 11 later. David, a distracted leader. I want to talk tonight um, about that. David, uh, in chapter 10, it starts out with David trying to show kindness, and uh, the chapter ends in war. And uh, this is really interesting, and it's, it's important background information to end up where we're going to be in chapter 11 and 12. But um, he's trying to show kindness. You remember in chapter 9, who's he trying to show kindness to? We talked about this last last week. Mephibosheth, right? And who's Mephibosheth? Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, and he's uh, has a certain condition. Anybody remember what that is? It's crippled. His nurse dropped him, right? Running and running from David when... Um, if she knew David's heart, she wouldn't have run with him, and uh, he wouldn't have faced that, and they wouldn't have hidden out all those years. But David desired to show kindness, and so he found Mephibosheth and brought him to the palace. And the Bible says that he did something with Mephibosheth. Do you remember what that was? He put him at his own table, light treated him like a son. And uh, that's kind of an interesting story if you follow that out later on. But uh, chapter 10, David's trying to show kindness again. So you look at this, and um, the situation here is that the Ammonites, who are the Ammonites? Let's pause and just think about that for a moment. I may mention it in a minute, but... Okay, the people of Lot, one of Lot's sons is named Ammon. And you remember when Israel came into the promised land out of Egypt, God told them, don't go to war against the Moabites, don't go to war against the Ammonites, because they're your relatives. And so... The Moabites didn't treat him very well. The Ammonites didn't treat him very well. Uh, but God didn't want them to be going to war with them. But during David's reign, uh, and, and before we get to that, where did the Ammonites live approximately? You can look in the back of your Bible at the maps if you like, but maybe you know already. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. So, in fact, their their capital is Rabbah, and uh, it's a modern-day city, big modern-day city. It's Amman, Jordan, is the modern-day city of Rabbah, the capital of Ammon. All right, so um, David decided to show kindness. Ammon, uh, the king of Ammon died, and his son Hanun, or Hanun, became the next king. And so David decided to show kindness to Hanun by sending some envoys to show respect for the late king. And uh, when the men got there, the envoys got to uh, the capital city, uh, Hanan's advisors suspected that David was spying on them so that he could conquer the land. And so they cut their half their beards off. I don't know if it was right or left or up or down, but they cut half their beards off and they also <laughs> cut their cut their clothes so that their butt showed. That's the short version of it. And then they sent them back in the direction of Israel and, and uh, word came back and David said, go ahead and wait at Jericho till your beards grow out, get a good change of clothes. And uh, then David, uh, he sent an army out to fight against the Ammonites. And so the Ammonites, they hired, uh, they hired the Arameans. Anybody know what the other name for Arameans are in the Bible? 
Syrians, okay? They're the Syrians, so they're from up north. Damascus would be their capital. Uh, they hired the Syrian uh, foot soldiers to come fight against Israel with their charioteers. And, and Syria was a powerhouse in the region, but David's, uh, David's army pushed back the, uh, the Syrians, not the Assyrians, those are separate, Syrians, until uh, they fled and left Ammon exposed. And so David goes back home if he's out fighting with them, and he sends out uh, his leaders to go to battle against against Ammon, and they surround the capital city of Rabbah. And that kind of leads us through chapter 10 into chapter 11, where we find David a distracted leader. Up to this point, uh, in this chapter, we see something shocking happen, something new and shocking. And up to this point, uh, the Bible speaks really highly of David. And then it gives us this bald narrative uh, and a surprising twist describing a man after God's own heart. All right, let's take a few moments and read that here. We're going to read all of chapter 11. Does anybody want to help me with that? Okay, all right. Um, Lorene, if you want to go ahead and read, why don't you read verses 1 through... Um, why don't you read 1 through... Sorry, 1 through 5 here. That would be good. Okay, thank you. And then uh, Sierra verses... 6 through 15. Okay. Is that uh, through verse 15? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. And then, Dean, would you be willing to read 16 through 21? Okay. That's good. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent to him, uh, sent him to say, The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows down at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messengers, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Do you see what he's doing there? He's making it be like, this is bad luck. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after a time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And we'll look further in just a moment. Um, So we're introduced to a couple new characters. Who are they? Bathsheba, okay, Bathsheba and Uriah. What do we know about Uriah? Well, we know that he's one of David's mighty warriors from 1 Chronicles 11.41. And uh, in 1 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 23, maybe that's 1 Samuel 23. We'll have to look at which reference that is. 2 Samuel 23, verse 39. Uh, Uriah is mentioned last among those who are part of David's fighting men. They're known as the thirty. But interesting because in Second Samuel twenty three thirty nine it says there, but there were thirty seven of them. So there's thirty, but there's thirty seven. Sometimes when it comes to um, army positions and it mentions a certain number, it's not always exactly that number. It's just using a ballpark figure. Like if somebody is getting paid a certain amount of money per year, they would not say their salary to the 
dollars and cents. They would say it in the tens of thousands probably. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like that, that there's their ballpark figures. But Uriah is one of the 30 fighting men. He's commander, okay? And then Bathsheba, we hear that he's, uh, she's the daughter of another member of the 30, okay? Eliam, and uh, a different spelling is associated with that in Second uh, Samuel 23, but it's the same person. It has the same meaning to both of those words. And uh, not only that, but she's the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Uh, uh, do you remember who Ahithophel is? Ahithophel is one of Saul's main advisors. And when David's uh, son Absalom goes to war against David, the chief advisor for Absalom is Ahithophel. So this is the grand this is the granddaughter uh, of Ahithophel. So we know Uriah and we know Bathsheba. And there's a there's an irony here. What is what is irony? Anybody know? The Bible uses it a lot. Irony is when you expect one thing and you get another. Okay, and sometimes that's funny. Uh, sometimes it's funny when irony is used. Other times it's sad. Sometimes it's shocking. Uh, sometimes it is infuri- infuriating. What kind of response to you uh, are we supposed to have when we read this story? How could David do that? Disgust? Outrage? Disappointment? Shock? Like, we, we're not prepared for it. We know it because we've read this story over and over again. But if we hadn't, and all we'd heard about up to this point is everything else the Bible had said about David, we're reading this for the first time, it's going to shock us. But we've come prepared. So uh, nobody get up and leave. Nobody pass out or faint. We know what's going to take place here. Uh, but it is supposed to be shocking to us when we come to this moment. And uh, one of the things that's shocking about this is a comparison that we can make between David and Uriah. Okay, what, what, what else do we know about Uriah? We know he's one of the fighting men, but there's something else about him that's mentioned every single time. He's a Hittite. What does that mean in terms of what he's not? He's not a natural-born Hebrew, is he? He's an outsider. He's an outsider who's adopted the religion of Yahwehism. He's a servant, a servant of Yahweh. And uh, he's fighting on the side of the armies of the Lord. And so there's some irony that we see in all of this. First of all, I think uh, the, the thing that we see is that David's not at war. And, and if you look at verse 1 with me, you can see this here. We might, we might make a big deal of this. We might not. It seems to me that this is an editorial comment that we're getting in the first verse of chapter 11. In the spring, notice what it says, at the time when kings go off to war. Do you see that? Kings go off to war. Uh, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Okay, What does that kind of suggest? Anybody want to take a guess at that? Huh? He's getting old? Okay. That could be. Okay. Kind of like Saul. Although his libido would speak (laughs) opposite of him getting old, wouldn't it? He deserved a break. He's fighting too hard. Okay. 
Yeah. Right. That's true. That's true. It's hard to understand this, but it seems to me that the narrator here is setting us up for a surprise. Kings go off to war. David sent his army out. Do you see that? So that's what it seems to me. And here's the irony is David is not fighting. Uriah is fighting the Lord's battles. Okay, you can see that in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Um, Uriah, and I know we're getting a little bit ahead of this story here, but we've already read it. When he is called back home, he refuses to sleep in comfort, but David is in his palace. Do you see that? There's a holy war that's taking place here, and he refuses to sleep in comfort, but David continues to remain in his palace. And then Uriah refuses to be with his wife, and part of this could go back to a consecration type of thing that goes along with holy war. You can see a little bit about this in Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 through 14, where when they, they consecrated themselves for battle, they didn't have sexual intercourse leading up to that. And so Uriah is consecrating himself or remaining consecrated for holy war. David not only is not observing that, but he's actually sleeping with somebody else's wife. See the irony here? This is ironic. Right? Yeah. I don't I don't I don't know. I mean, we can't we can speculate, but I don't know. We know what happened. But it is. It's awful, this whole thing. So, no, ironic would be you're expecting David to be out there fighting with his men, but he's not. You're expecting him to be leading the Holy Crusade, but instead it's an outsider, a Hittite who's out there fighting the battle while David's at home. That's irony. Now, you'd expect David as the one who, whom God said, I'll give you victory against your enemies on every side to be out there. And even if his men told him, which I remember that, he got surrounded and he almost, it looked like he was going to get killed. And somebody came in and rescued him and they said, you, you probably need to stay home from now on. You're our leader. You're worth 10,000 of us. Um, but he doesn't always listen to his men's advice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important to watch for these things because the Bible uses irony in that way. We're supposed to be, I think, we're supposed to be a little bit shocked by this. We expect one thing and get another. Well, I don't. I think what the narrator is trying to say here is that that's where he should have been. That's what I think, but. That's what it seems to me when it says kings go out to war, David didn't go out to war. It seems to me like it's saying this is what we would expect of him. So I don't know that coincidence would would capture it. Irony is more, uh, I think, what's taking place here. Uriah refuses to 
to sleep with his wife. David is sleeping with somebody else's wife. That's irony. Okay? Uriah is a Hittite who's converted. David was born into a godly Israelite family, and that shouldn't probably mean a lot to us in uh, New Testament terms because it doesn't matter who you're, um, what lineage you come from. If you make a decision to follow Christ, you're, you're in the family of God. But in the Old Testament, that's, much, that's a much bigger deal. Right, like natural-born Israelite versus an outsider. The the outsider they didn't have the full access of the temple, like um, those who were insiders and Hebrews. Okay. Um, verse four tells us three things about this situation that I think are, are worth noting. The first is that when um, he calls for Bathsheba, he's he's up on the rooftop, and we'll go through this uh, progression in just a moment, but. But it tells us three things, that when he inquires about her, he asks about her, the first thing is that the response comes back that this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What's that tell us? She's married. She's married, right? Okay. And then the second thing, uh, verse 4 tells us, go ahead and look at verse 4 with me. Look at what it says there. Um, and I'm trying to find it in my, my, my numbers are mixed in with the text. Verse 4 David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her, and she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. The second thing, if it's Uriah's wife, and this more in verse 3, I guess, then David would know what about Uriah? They hadn't slept with her, okay, but what else? He knows his 30 men. Are you with me? Okay. That he's gone. Do you see that? There's more, there's a, there's kind of a sneaky thing that's going on here in David's mind. He knows that Uriah is out of town. And so, go get her and bring her to me. I imagine she had a choice. But whether she would feel compelled by David's power or not, I don't know. Well, it did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're not ever, I don't ever remember reading a comment on Bathsheba's culpability here. You have to understand there must have been something. Remember in the Old Testament, it talks about if somebody is raped out away and they don't cry out, there's guilt to that. That if they do cry out, then they can avert that. If nobody hears, then how, how do they know? So I don't know how to navigate that with Bathsheba. Where's the, where's the guilt in all of this? I don't know. But we do know David's guilty. Are you with me? Are you okay to just suspend judgment on Bathsheba and let God decide that? I'm, I'm good to do that. But we do know David's guilty. And so we know she's married. We know her husband's out of town. And then here's the third thing, and this is in verse 4. Again, she was cleaning herself after her period. Sorry to just say that bluntly, but this is what was going on. This Bible text isn't hiding that from us. Okay, it's telling us. What does that tell us about this pregnancy? It didn't exist prior to David, right? Are you with me? So this is David's doing. He's caught. The biblical text knows. God knows. Nathan knows. That's why he felt he had to, 
I, I knew what you meant. But we want to make sure we know that at any stage along the way, he could have put a stop to this. And that's, I think, the important part of what we want to talk about next is that there's progression in sin. Okay, I want you to notice the progression. One thing that occurs to me when I look at this story is how quickly it escalates. It goes from zero to 60 quicker than a Corvette, doesn't it? I mean, it's fast. It's, it's there before we know it. Um, you know, and being where you should be and doing what you should be doing, if, if that's where uh, David should be is in battle with his men, you can still be tempted when you're doing the right thing and in the right place. You, you still can. Jesus, after all, was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God. Did you know that? And while he was there, he was tempted. So you can be doing the will of God and be tempted. We should never think that uh, temptation only comes to those who are disobeying God. Uh, that's not true. You can be doing the right thing. Jesus was tempted and he was doing the right thing. So, But here it just seems that this whole situation would have been avoided if David was out there fighting with his men. And so the first thing I, I want to say, and, and this in fact, uh, him being home is not the sole reason all of this happened. You know, sometimes we can blame the devil and we can blame circumstance. I'm just, you remember, I think it was Curly who used to always say for the three stooges, you know, get deep theology from the three stooges. <laughs> I'm just a victim of circumstance, <laughs> right? And we can feel that way at times. But when it comes down to it, God expects us to make the right decisions with the will that he gave us. And so we can't just say the devil made me do it. We can't just say that circumstances made me do it. We have a choice in what we do. Well, this isn't the sole reason, but I would suggest to you the first stage in this progression is that David was idle. And you know what the Bible says about idle hands, right? Just kidding. It's not in the Bible. It's the devil's workshop. It's not in the Bible, just to be clear. But we do know that being idle at times gives opportunity for the, for the enemy. If we're not busy... A lot of temptation could be avoided if we're busy doing what God asks us to do. Okay, Not every temptation, because I think we'll still be tempted. We would be tempted even in the good things, like you're doing the right things for God. There can be a temptation to pride or to do it for the wrong motives or all kinds of things. But there are temptations, I think, that multiply when we're not busy doing the Lord's work. Okay, There's still temptations, whether we're doing it or not, but it seems to me that we put ourselves in more danger when we're not busy doing what God's asked us to do. Okay, so he was idle. The next thing is that he saw, I don't know how this happened, but he's up on his roof wandering around, and he saw. So let me ask you a question. Is it, was that a sin for him to have accidentally seen something? I don't think he... At this point, if I'm following what's taking place here, I don't think that the Bible is saying that David was wrong in having seen something. It's in, it's in his heart, and it's, it's in going beyond that and entertaining that, that where the sin begins to occur. Like having a, a thought, uh, you know, a temptation come through. That Temptation is not a sin. A temptation is a sin when we allow it to remain and we feed it, then it becomes sin. Okay, so he saw, and this is where I think the line is crossed, is the next thing we see is that he inquired. He inquired. 
Okay. Uh, it says that in verse, oh, where is that? David walked around on the roof. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out who it was. He inquired of her. That's, yeah, three and four. He inquired, who is this, the daughter of, the wife of? So he inquired. And here's the interesting thing. It's interesting to me anyway. Up to this point in Second Samuel, um, anytime the word inquired, the verb inquired is used, it's David inquiring of the Lord. Do you see that? Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 19, chapter 5, verse 23, David inquired, inquired, inquired of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, who this woman was. That's a different kind of inquiry, isn't it? He's inquiring about something else altogether, okay? And still, he, he may be entertaining some thoughts in his heart. There's sin in that, but the damage is minimal compared to what happens next. He sent for her and had her brought to him. See, this progresses. And then he consummated okay, and sent her back home. And then the next thing that happens is she gets word that she's pregnant, and she sends that to him, and he conspires to cover it up. Okay, he conspires to cover it up. And then I think as a seventh step in this, that he involves others in his sin. Uh, he t- he uh, agrees with Joab, and he comes up with a plan. And the really sad part about this, there's lots of sad things in this, but one of the really heartless things that he does here is he sends Uriah with his own death sentence. Did you know that? He sends him with the paper that is going to go to Joab that tells him when they get into battle, withdraw from this man. That's heartbreaking. And all Uriah has ever done has been faithful to fight for David. He's one of the 30. He's one of the men that David has put in charge to many others. And now he's going to send him to his own death to cover up his own sin. And I think we can simplify it this way. There's temptation, then there's entertainment, then there's indulgence, and then there's the cover-up. That's what happens with this scenario. And I think David was scared. And I think one of the reasons that sexual sin is so heinous is that it destroys families and it destroys the fabric of society. Okay? It's destroying a life here, but, but even more than that, uh, it's dealing with the fabric of families, which I think is what God intends to be a building block of all society. So David's scared. He gave in to sin, a sin which was punishable by death. Anybody remember which commandment this is that David's broken before? I think it's the adultery one. Which one's that one? Do you know? It's seven. Number seven, yes. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, but... You shall not commit adultery. And then I think, is it six that's right before that? You shall not kill, which is actually a mistranslation. It's murder is the actual word there. Because, you know, they did they did kill people in battle, but that's a different word. Okay, So murder, you shall not murder. And this is what David's done here. And so he's scared, and I think he may be afraid that he would be executed because no one's above God's law. And he may have been afraid of the message that it would send to the rest of Israel about whether it's right to follow God or not. And he was known as a man after God's own heart. 
and there's the loss of all of his reputation and everything that's that's come up to this point. And it seems to me, I know, I want to mention this now because I think it's important. In, this is in Second Samuel chapter 11, right? In Second Samuel chapter 7, God has made a promise already that he's going to build a house out of David. We're going to come to that another time, but I want you to know that that promise has been made prior to this sin. Do you think... Do you think uh, God was aware when he made that promise to David that this was going to happen? Yeah? He knew, because God has foreknowledge. Yes. Laureen, you're stealing my thunder here. No, I'm just teasing you. You're exactly right. And that, and we're going to re, I'm just teasing you. We're going to reinforce that. But that is, that's exactly right. And that's part of the mercy aspect of this. Um. And there's, there's a beautiful element of that. But uh, the cover-up takes this thing to the next level. And the Bible makes it plain um, in chapter 11, verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had Bathsheba brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. So that's the first part. You see a progression here. And then you you have the rebuke. Let's turn to chapter 12 here and take a look at this rebuke. I don't know if you've ever heard of Oz Guinness or not, but he wrote a really good book called Fool's Talk. And he talks about in that book uh, the genius of moments in the Bible where people bait somebody and then they catch them. They're hoisted by their own petard. I don't know if you've heard that or not, but but that's exactly what happens here is that um, that he gets, Nathan the prophet comes, and he catches David with uh, his own sense of justice. So let's look at chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord, it just has said, remember, chapter breaks are not, were not written into the Hebrew Bible or the Greek Bible, right? Are you with me on that? So it goes directly from chapter 11. The thing that David has done displeased the Lord too. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Uh, the rich man had very many, a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man uh, refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. So he puts this story out there, and he catches David in a trap, doesn't he? So the reason Nathan is coming and talking uh, in this way to David, and David's going along with it, is because David is Israel's judge. Remember, it talks about him. We talked about this last week, that that he he reigned in righteousness and justice over Israel, which means that he was the judge. People brought their... Um, 
They're Supreme Court type cases before him. Solomon was, you see this in Solomon's reign when the lady brings, the two ladies bring the baby. And he says, hey, let's just cut the thing in half and then we'll, but in wisdom he knew what would happen. So David is as judge and he's hearing this case and he's like, that guy deserves to die. And so that's David's response. Verse 6 goes on to say, as surely as the Lord lives, he deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then uh, Nathan rebukes him. He points the finger at David. He says, you're the man. You're the man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. So notice that uh, he points the finger and then he enumerates the blessings. Okay, This is part of the conviction of uh, David is he's saying, I've blessed you in all of these ways. Look at what he says. He says, I anointed you king. Okay, 7C. 7D, I delivered you from Saul. And then I gave you Saul's house and wives. Okay, in chapter 8, verse A, uh, I put your master's wives in your arms. I gave you his house. Okay, and I want to be clear on this that what that means is <coughs> he consolidated the kingdom under David. Saul had two wives, uh, they're never mentioned among David's wives. And one of them was the mother of one of David's wives. Right? Who? Michael. Right? So, um, this isn't this isn't saying that they became his wives. This is saying that David became king and took over, consolidated Saul's kingdom. And then I gave you Israel and Judah, and I would have given you more. Chapter or verse eight C. I would have given you even more than that had you required it. And then he names the sin. Look at verse nine. It says uh, there in verse 9, sorry, I've got to find it in my text here. It says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? How does God see it when we disobey him? Despising the word of the Lord. By doing what was evil in his eyes, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, took his wife to be your own. You killed him with uh, the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you, you despise me. And took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. So he names the sin. And then he names the consequences in verse 10. And then you hear David's confession in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replies in, uh, in sentencing David. Okay, This isn't Nathan's sentence. This is the Lord's sentence upon David. Look at what he says. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Uh, you are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with the Lord for the child. He fasted. He spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food. And that's kind of an interesting story about what happens next. The The child dies, and David gets up and cleans himself up and takes care of himself. And um, the servant said, why, why, did you, why are you acting like this now? And he says, as long as the, there was still hope, I was going to pray. And then when I find out that the baby has died, I'm 
um, letting that go and knowing that uh, I will go to him, but he will not come to me. So there's repentance that's taken place, and he's sentenced in this. But I want to turn to Psalm 51. I don't know if you knew this, but Psalm 51 is the repentance psalm related to um, David's uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And I think as we look at this, we see some things that are uh, significant. Psalm 51. You probably remember hearing some of these songs. If you're a little bit older, you probably remember Keith Green singing some of these songs, right? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Keith Green, he used to sing that song. Look at the prayer of David. This is, this is, this is how to pray a prayer of repentance. If there's ever a model in the Bible, this is one of them, okay? Uh, notice, and let's just read. We'll read uh, the whole thing. And we'll look at some different parts. We've got a few minutes here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God of my, you are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole when bulls will be offered on your altar. I'd like you to notice some things here in this prayer of repentance that David prays. The first thing is that he's appealing to God's nature. I think this is really important because when we talk to God, we need to know what kind of God it is that we serve. Notice he's appealing to God's nature in verses 1 and 2. According to your unfailing love, 1b. According to your great compassion, 1c. And then he says, he asks for these things, have mercy, blot out, wash away, cleanse, relating to the goodness of God. Notice in verses 3 through 6, so before we go to that, that first part is a recognition of the kind of God that we're appealing to. We need to know that what kind of God it is that we call upon. The second uh, portion here is a recognition of sin. In verses 3 through 6, he uh, recognizes transgressions and sins in verse 3. Um, if you look at verse 4, the first part of that, he recognizes his offenses are against God. 
And I want to make sure we point that out. Look at what uh, he says there in verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I'm going to ask this question because I think it's really important. Is that a poetic statement or is that a prosaic statement? Is he saying absolutely it's only against God that he sinned or is he saying that in a way that sets that far above all the others? Has, in other words, has David sinned against anybody else? He has. He has. But what he's saying is something like when Jesus said, if you come to me, unless you hate father and mother and even your own life, you're not worthy of me. Does he mean that literally, like prosaically, or does he mean that poetically? He means it poetically. Like, I'm not asking you to really hate your parents. I'm saying in comparison to them, this is how you ought to treat me. And that's what David's saying here, is in comparison with the sin you've committed against others, the greater sin is against God. And so he's recognizing that against you and you alone have I sinned. And let me make this uh, clear. All sin, even if it's against other people, is against God. All sin. So that that's important to, to know. So David, yes, he killed Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against Uriah. And uh, he sinned against his wives. He sinned against his nation. He sinned against the law of God. He sinned against the Lord. What's that? And Joab, yes. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, we've forgotten about Joab. Scoundrelly as he was got wrapped up in this too. Um, so recognize, he recognized his offenses are against God. And then this is kind of a really um, insightful thing that David says next, chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 4, the second part of it, against you and you only have I sinned, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Here's what often happens is that when people uh, will sin, they'll say, well, I did what was wrong, but here's why. And they try to justify it. Like, there's some justifiable reason for why it was okay. Okay? And so many times we put God in the wrong when we do that because we're saying that his judgments concerning us are not right, that he really doesn't understand the situation. And if he did, he would give us a pass. And what David is saying here is he's taking responsibility for his sin and saying that what you say about me is not right. A lot of times in our culture, we want to change the law of God to suit us, right? Not, not us, hopefully, but people do. We, we bring the standard down to our level and make it achievable and make uh, other people the comparison so that if I'm better than them, I'm okay. And God's judgments sometimes seem harsh to us. And this is saying, David is saying, what you've said about me is right. Do you know the, the word for confession is actually a word that means to say the same thing. Okay? So when we're confessing our sins, we're saying with God, this is true. When you confess your sins, you're saying, Lord, you're right. What I've done is wrong. That's opposite of making excuses. That's taking responsibility for our sins. And David does that and says, what you've said about me is right. Your definitions of right and wrong, they're right. And then you'll notice um, he recognizes his sinful nature in verse 5. Um, and then he recognizes God's expectation. You've required righteousness from the womb. Verse 6, 
Then you see in verses 7 through 9 a restoration of innocence or a call for that. Uh, he, he calls for restoration to cleanness. Look at verse 7 there. It says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. What does that mean? Anybody know what hyssop is? Okay, yeah. That's, you're on the right track there. That's right. I mean, there's a place where it's used for that. There's a place where it's used to um, be thrown upon the red heifer when they burn the offering. Sierra? Yep, they did. That's, I think, one of the most profound things here is that hyssop was used kind of like a cleansing brush of some kind that they would dip in blood or water and sprinkle or paint. And so when he's saying cleanse me with hyssop, it's like when the Israelites um, were told to put blood on the doorposts of the house, take a, a branch of hyssop, which was a small bush, and paint the blood on the doorpost of the house. It was something used in cleansing. And so he's saying, cleanse me with hyssop, okay, and I will be clean. And he goes on to say, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Okay, so here is a, a call for um, a restoration of innocence. Verse 8 um, is calling for, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. What does he mean by crushed bones? Anybody ever been under conviction for any period of time where it feels like your spiritual life has dried up? What's that? Which time? <laughs> it can feel like your whole spiritual life has dried up until you come to the Lord and take care of that thing and put it under his blood, and then the joy of our salvation can be restored. That's, I think, what this is talking about here is restoring the clear conscience so that there can be true rejoicing. And then restoring of right standing in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Um, let, me, let me make a comment here that I think is important. It probably doesn't seem important, but it is. A lot of people want to make a distinction between sin and iniquities. And there's no, there's no distinguishable difference between the two in the Hebrew Bible. So that's important to keep in mind because sometimes we want to say iniquity can mean sin, sin's guilt, but it's really the same thing as sin. And, and here's one example of that is that it's used in poetic uh, synonymous parallel. Sin's iniquity. It's using two variations in Hebrew poetry to say the same thing. And so let's be careful. There's some teachers out there that want to make a distinction between those two, and they've created another category of sin that not only do we need the blood of Jesus, but we need something else to cover it. Now, when you're forgiven and you're cleansed, you're cleansed of your iniquities. He cleanses us from our iniquities. Read uh, Isaiah 53. <coughs> All right. Um, going on here, he's taking care of our sin by restoring us to right standing with himself, and that's in verse 9. Um, then in verse 10, a renewal of a right kind of heart, verse 10 through 12 Notice the renewing of a right heart before God. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me, one that, that pursues and runs after you. It's renewing the heart to be right before God. And then in verse 11, renewing life in the presence of God. 
Okay? Sin has created distance between him and God. He needs to see a renewal of the presence of God in his life. If you've ever lived in any period of rebellion in your Christian life, you've probably experienced a time where you felt God was very distant. And this is a restoration of the presence of God in his life that he's asking for. Don't cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. If you take the Holy Spirit away from our lives, you're going to feel distant from God. You're going to not only feel distant because feelings can be deceptive, but you will be distant from God. Okay? With the Holy Spirit is the presence of God mediated to us every moment of our Christian life. Okay? When the Holy Spirit is near, uh, that's the presence of God. And then renew, renewing the joy of walking before the Lord in verse 12. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. There's joy in walking before the Lord, and he's asking for that to be restored. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guilt. He's asking once again, deliver from that. And then I'd like you to notice in verses 16 through 19, the sacrifices that God desires. He's not desiring primarily animal sacrifices, even in the Old Testament. Do you know that? The, the animal sacrifices were a symbolic substitute. I call, it, I, I call it a placeholder until Jesus will come. Okay? It holds the place. It pushes the, the game forward a little bit until Jesus will finally come and replace all of that because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, according to Hebrews. All it did was push it off, and in faith, it acted as a, um, a placeholder, a, a visual aid for faith until the coming of Jesus. That's what it did. And so people put uh, their atoning sacrifice out there, but that wasn't really what took guilt away. It was forgiveness of God. It was the mercy of God because God in his foreknowledge knew what would happen. So all of the forgiveness of the Old Testament really is on Jesus projected backwards. Do you understand what I mean? That, that it's projected backwards because of what Jesus would one day do. Remember, he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. So in God's foreknowledge, he knew of the absoluteness that this would take place, and he could put the sins there, even though the placeholder pushed it out in terms of our human understanding. Does that make sense? So it's really on Jesus. He's the reason Old Testament and New Testament believers can be forgiven. So the sacrifices God desires, it's not the blood of bulls and goats in verse 16. He doesn't, he doesn't desire that. What he desires is what? Verse 17. A broken heart and a contrite spirit. This is one that is truly sorry for sin and ready to change. That's what he'll not despise. He doesn't despise that kind of sacrifice. And then, when that takes place, then in verse 19, he says, I can, just, I can rejoice in the blood of bulls and goats for that period of time. Although that's not our lot. We're in a different dispensation altogether. We don't need that anymore. The once for all sacrifice has taken place. We don't need to look back at the object lesson. The reality has come. Are you with me? In Jesus. So now we, we think back to what Jesus has done, and that is where uh, true sacrifice has taken place. There is forgiveness for the truly repentant, and there is mercy. You know, after um, this first child died, 
David brought Bathsheba into the home. I don't know if you knew this, but later on, um, Absalom rises up. Absalom is David's son, and he rises up against David. And um, we don't have time to talk about all of that, but the one thing that he does is he, he goes up on the rooftop and sleeps with all David's wives, right? Apart from it appears Bathsheba. What we hear about going on with Bathsheba is that she has four more children. She bears David four more sons after this one dies. And what's the most famous of those sons? <laughs> Solomon. Well, that was a trick question. Who's the most famous of the sons if we expand the definition of sons? It's Jesus, right? But um, Solomon is the immediate next one, and it would be uh, through Bathsheba that the promised Messiah would come. And Bathsheba, it's interesting in this story. We're, we're coming to a close here, so if you'll give me a few more minutes, so we'll be done in probably five. Um, in the in the in this story that we just read, She's only called Bathsheba at the beginning and the end. Do you know that? Every other time, she's referred to as Uriah's wife. It's as if the biblical narrator wants to remind us, this is Uriah's wife and David has done wrong. And at the end, she's called Bathsheba. In other places, she's called Bathsheba. Uh, but do you know that even Matthew will not let this go? In the genealogy of Jesus, it's going through and it's naming king after king. And it says, and, this, and Solomon was born of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Isn't that interesting? Even in the lineage of Jesus, we're not going to let this go. Okay, uh, That's Matthew 1.6. What's that? Well, I don't think it's a matter of being unforgiving. It's recognizing the consequences and recognizing this is that story. And, and here are the principles. I'm going to wrap this up real quick. Temptation comes to everyone no matter, uh, no matter who you are. No one's immune to the possibility of serious failure. Second, forgiveness for sins is available because of a merciful God. Third, uh, it's better to stop sin early in the process. The price gets higher the further it goes. And fourth, sin has consequences even when there's forgiveness. And so in this sense, it's better not to sin at all. Okay. Remember, David has consequences that go far beyond this. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Scripture. We have the fellowship of believers to help us to avoid pitfalls. But if we fail, we have an advocate, Jesus the righteous, um, who can advocate on our behalf, and we can be forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. What's that? Amen. All right. Thank you all for sharing. Let's stand real quick and have a word of prayer. And if uh, there's more discussion, I encourage you to have it as soon as we're done here. Father, thank you for this word, a word of warning, a word of caution, a word of mercy and grace as well. We thank you that you're a forgiving God. And we thank you that, Lord, when we look at the heroes of faith, we get to see that they're people that uh, have failures and, and that we can know that you're merciful and that, uh, uh, God forbid, that if we should sin, if we should, that we should sin, but if we do, we know we can turn to you and you're a forgiver of the great and the small. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you're blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.